Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a molded pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard It made him Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-342 of the Run Run Live podcast. It's me, Chris, your host. Today we talk with author Matt Fitzgerald, mostly about his new book, How Bad Do You Want It? (laughs) But you may know Matt's name from Runner's World and Competitor and Men's Fitness, among other publications. His 2014 book, 8020 Running, Run Stronger and Race Faster by Training Slower, made a big splash. You may remember that one. Got a big spread in Runner's World for that one. So Matt and I geek out about the mental aspects of racing to your limits, both physically and psychologically. Then in section one, I'm going to report on my lessons learned from the Boston Marathon this year. And I must be a slow learner because I keep having to learn some lessons over and over again. (laughs) In section two, I'm going to give you my takeaways from a book I read on conversation tactics. And remember, the Run Run Live podcast is ad-free and listener-supported, and we do this by offering a membership option. So lots of good stuff over there. What I've got new is a letter I wrote for my daughter when she graduated that made me cry and an introspective essay on the nature of change that I wrote this week. So for the cost of one faux leather bookmark with a Bible quote on it about everlasting love, for the cost of that, you can be a member of the Run Run Live support crew. Links are in the show notes and at runrunlive.com. Well, my friends, we've made it to the summer solstice. That time, that is the official astronomical beginning of summer, the longest day of the year up here in the northern hemisphere, where the earth wobbles precariously, catches itself, and begins the long, drunken careen back to winter. And if you're in the southern hemisphere, it still works. Just switch all the words around to their opposites, and it'll it'll, it'll work. For all the pagan sun worshippers out there, you need to build some stone circles and do a little dance, maybe sacrifice something like a Six-pack of lager, cold lager, good this time of year. If you don't believe the earth is round, well, there's no hope for you anyhow. Seriously, if you want to have some fun (laughs) or be disturbed, I don't know. It depends how you look at it. 
ask random people basic astronomy questions like, does the Earth orbit around the Sun, or does the Sun orbit around the Earth? Or, name the planets. Extra credit if they can name them in sequence, by the way. And then sit back and be surprised or disturbed <laughs> with the answers you get. It's uh, it's interesting. It's getting warm up in my neck of the woods. The deer flies are out. I'm adjusting to it as always. For everything, there is a season. Turn, turn, turn. Mostly, I'm just trying to get my runs in, trying to keep all the balls in the air. I'm doing a lot of trail running and some mountain biking. It's all good. Friday, I hit the ski area next to my house and did some reps on my bike up the tubing hill. It's just about right for me to get to max effort right at the top without blowing up or falling over. It's a good workout. Sunday, I did two hours in the trails before going to have Father's Day lunch with my mom and my brother. Now, I'm a bit tired today. We had one of those summer thunderstorm fronts roll through at 3 in the morning. And thunder and lightning causes Buddy, the old wonder dog, to to have a lot of personal stress. And he needs to share his unhappiness with me and everyone else. And sometimes he'll go and hide in the bathtub. And sometimes we'll open the basement door and let him hide down there. But usually he just wanders the house being miserable and sharing it with everyone like last night. So it's summer. What are you going to do? I don't mind running in the heat as long as I'm acclimated and I'm kitted out for it. And I love running in the warm summer rain. I was down in Atlanta all last week. It was a series of sort of all-hands type meetings where the whole company comes in. And I was on stage for some of it. Frankly, it was a tiring week. There's the travel, the preparation, getting up to get my workouts in, being engaged all day, and then socializing at night. And I did manage to get enough sleep to execute. I did manage to get some sort of workouts in in the morning. And it was super hot in Atlanta, like high 90s, close to 100 degrees with humidity. Even in the morning, I was soaked from running outside. And I told them that the only thing keeping me from bursting into flames was, in fact, the humidity. We were down near Georgia Tech this time, so I got to explore the Tech campus on one morning run, which was fun. And I also got to go to a Braves game one night, and they're tearing that stadium down next year. So Matt Fitzgerald and I, today, we're going to talk about mental training a lot in the interview. And your mental engagement in the training and racing is as important as the physical engagement. You can't be successful unless you have both. It's that perfect combination of mental engagement and physical capability that make you successful. And I think you can draw a parallel from this to your career or to your work, to your job. If you hate what you're doing and you're not mentally engaged, it doesn't matter how good you are at it, how much experience you have, you're still going to struggle. The inverse is true as well. If you're mentally engaged but don't know what you're doing, that's not going to work either. And I think one of the telltale signs that you aren't mentally engaged in what you're doing is whether the doing of it saps your energy or energizes you. If you are fully mentally bought into the job, the work, the career, you will have inexhaustible energy to pour into it. Doing the work will give you energy. If you are in a position 
where doing the work exhausts you while you're doing the work, then either the work or the people you're working with are not right for you. There's a disconnect there somewhere. So pay attention and see which way your energy meter runs while you're doing the work. Maybe you'll get a signal there. Maybe you'll learn something. When I was jogging around the tech campus last week, I was listening to Dirt Dog, our old friend Dirt Dog, talk about the difference between a job, a career, and a calling. And I think one of those differences may be in the way your energy flows. So you can keep an eye on that. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. All right, what did I learn from Boston this year? They say you should learn from your failures. Tony Robbins would say it's only a failure if you don't learn anything. So I thought I'd go back and look at my 2016 Boston Marathon and see if I could learn anything. First thing, train smart to reach your potential. So the first thing I learned, and not just at Boston but all through the training cycle, is that I can still train at a fairly high level. Even at my age, I can still hit the work fairly hard as long as I'm smart about it. And I can do the work necessary to get into qualification race shape as long as I include strength and flexibility and range of motion and maintenance and I'm consistent about it. And that's the second thing I learned. Be consistent with core strength, flexibility, and range of motion. I trained, I think, up into the 50 to 60 miles per week realm during this cycle. And that's pretty high on a four-day week. So that means I spent the other three days working on my core and flexibility. And I did not get injured. I had very little, if any, tendonitis. I didn't get burnt out or overtrained, and I hit almost all those workouts. So consistent yoga sessions was one thing that helped immensely to keep my hips, my hamstrings, my Achilles strong and flexible with good range of motion. Third thing, start with base. If you do the math, on a four-day schedule, I was going longer on most of those days in the 10 to 14-mile range, making good use of my run days. And this is only possible if you take the time to build a good base. This means front-loading longer zone 2 effort runs into the plan, and these take the form of an hour and a half to two-hour midweek zone 2 workouts. So as I get older, I really need to rely on that big base and not so much on race strength. Don't ignore the base building phase of your training. Don't assume you have the base aerobic fitness. No matter how experienced you are, base is good. <laughs> that base training enabled me to take on the race-specific training I needed to get ready. Next thing I learned is three-week build cycles aren't appropriate for me anymore. I used to train in three-week cycles during my campaigns, and what this means is my weeks would escalate in difficulty, with the third week being the peak week for mileage and effort. And if I try that cycle today, I really have difficulty executing that third week. My body can't sustain the big effort for that third week, and I don't get as much out of the workouts because I really can't execute them. Now I need to do a two-week cycle. And this gives me that off week to recover a bit so I can hit the up week harder 
and cleaner and get more benefit or the intended benefits from those workouts. Next thing I learned is that the timing of the cycles is more important to me as I've gotten older. So I don't recover as quickly between race efforts as I used to. And this makes racing a marathon something that I have to peak fairly precisely on. In my racing prime, I could race hard almost every weekend. And that's not really possible anymore. I don't have any specific data on it, but it feels like I need at least three weeks between hard efforts. And this applies to the training cycle as well. If I race during my training, I need to do it as part of a peak week and allow enough enough time to recover. My days of back-to-back BU tries are probably over. The challenge with this slower recovery is that if your target race, like Boston, ends up being a bad weather day and you race it anyhow, you have to find another race three weeks out to use that fitness. And you start losing the fitness and the race specificity very quickly as well. And so it makes it almost a one-and-done decision to race a marathon now. If I go for it and don't get it, it's really a whole new cycle. I don't have the back-to-back recovery anymore, and I can't hold on to that race-specific fitness as well. And it really makes race planning very important because your chances of running a qualifying race are limited. I didn't learn this, but I was reminded that nutrition is important. I didn't do anything super special for Boston this year, but I was able to roll into my race day at my target weight and with enough fuel in my tank. So during my training, I tried to eat as clean as possible. For me, this means cutting back on meat and dairy and packaged foods and sugars and eating as much fruit and veg as I can. And this doesn't require a special effort on my part because it has become more and more just part of my lifestyle. I trained consistently with UCAN and have found that this is a good choice for me. The UCAN combined with the Zone 2 training allows me to burn fat economically and efficiently when I compete, and I'm thrilled not to have to rely on any sugary gels or Gatorade at all anymore in my training and my racing. So nutrition was a non-event for me this time around Boston, and that is because I spent the last 20 years figuring it out, and I know what works for me. I trained with the UCAN, I raced with it, so there were no surprises on race day. Next thing is beware of the heat. This falls under the category of things I already know. (laughs) I don't race well in the heat, especially in the spring when we northerners have yet to acclimate. And in hindsight, I should have backed off when I knew it was going to be warm. I made the decision to go for it. My logic was that the warmness might cost me five to seven minutes, but that I had potentially had the race fitness to overcome this. With my late starting corral, I got the brunt of it uh, at the worst point for me in the race. You can't do anything about the weather, but you have to know your limitations and work with them. Next thing is... Negative split is an excellent strategy for Boston. Again, things I already know. Unless you're an elite or you're in such good shape that you can attack the course, you need to execute a negative split strategy. With the heat, I thought I might be able to attack it and get off the course before it got too hot. So I went out hard, and I definitely did not have the fitness to front load the race and hang on. 
I have probably told a thousand people that you should not go out too fast at Boston, and I should have listened to my own advice. I set my PR at Boston by attacking the course and holding on at the end. But in order for the attack strategy to work at Boston, you need to have enough hardcore fitness to get through the hills before you start to fade. And I didn't have that fitness. If you crash in the hills, you can't recover. And I'm not sure why I've had to learn this lesson about a dozen times at Boston, but don't go out too hard. Next thing I learned is that my Garmin 310 XT is pretty bad at pacing and distance. My execution plan on race day relied way too heavily on the ability of my Garmin to tell me what my pace and distance was. The distance was off by 100 yards from the beginning, and the pace was all over the place. I think it's expecting too much to think that I could know my exact pace at any point in time. I'll have to look at the settings and see if I can find a way to get a more accurate pace. In the old days, I'd just wear my Ironman watch, and I'd do the math each mile mark to see if I was on pace. And I think this is a better approach for me, because... That would keep me from doing too much micro-correction and over-management of my pace. And it also keeps you true to the course mile marks, which, at the end of the day, are the mile marks that matter. So in summary, if I had to do it over again, I would go out a lot slower. I would try to negative split the race. I don't think I would have been able to qualify anyhow given the conditions, but I would have saved at least 10 minutes of that awful death shuffle positive split at the end. The shame of it is that I was in qualification shape and I was ready and prepared. I got not so good race conditions and had a bad day. It was a lost opportunity. I had that fitness and couldn't use it due to circumstance. Who knows when I will have that fitness again. So trying to qualify for Boston at Boston has historically been a bad decision for me. The course penalizes runners who are more aggressive than their training warrants. The weather is always a crapshoot. I mean, it's a great race, but I think I'd be better served saving my qualification attempts for more forgiving courses. And now for today's featured interview. Um, so, Matt, it's great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Likewise. was looking through your portfolio. You're a famous guy. Not famous enough. Not famous enough, but that's what you're going for? <laughs> I don't know. I like attention. Why don't you give us the uh, 200 words or less on who you are and what you do? If 200 doesn't work, you can go to five, given all the stuff that you've wrote about and thought about over the last few decades. Yeah, so I describe myself as an endurance sports author, coach, and nutritionist. Writing is definitely my first and most abiding passion, and uh, it just so happens that I get to write about another passion, which is endurance sports. But I also do you know, some coaching, and I am a certified sports nutritionist, so I help people figure out their nutritional roadblocks to success in sports. You know, I do some, some speaking, clinics, seminars, that type of thing. So it all, all adds up to a pretty cool lifestyle. Yeah, and a couple of the works, obviously, People will recognize your name from, uh, you know, Runner's World and Competitor and those kind of publications. But a couple of the works that really stood out for me were your 80-20 book, Run Slower to Get Faster, yep. which seems to align really well with the zeitgeist right now. Yep. Everybody's sort of embracing that, which is great. 
It's a bit of the um, existing Lydiard stuff and that that's matured into a pretty good science at this point. So that's great. But the other one I really want to talk to you about is the um, How Bad Do You Want It book. Yeah. And I, I just love that, uh-huh. right? Because it's, I don't know, it's just interesting to me because the majority of the competitors in endurance sports now are not looking to win. And a lot of them are not looking to actually, I don't know, put be in pain, I guess. Yeah. I don't know how to say it. Yeah. I, this may be a personal problem of mine. But I get the sense that they're missing out on so much by not finding that edge. And that edge is different for everybody. But there's a value to you in sort of self-awareness and self-investment. And I'll shout up in a second to finding that edge. So talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. I started running when I was 11, and I'm 45 now and still at it. So obviously, there's something in it for me. <laughs> and, you know, there are... There are a lot of rewards to signing up for races and training for them and completing them. But for me, the the real payoff is the journey, the interior journey that you go on when you really push your limits and push to the point where you just want nothing more than to quit, but you don't quit. (laughs) And you learn so much about yourself in those moments. And it's exactly as you said, I think that if you kind of stay just on the safe side of the threshold of your comfort zone, you really miss out on that biggest payoff that endurance sports have to offer. I think there's a life lesson or a metaphor there for anything you do, which is if you go into it with the attitude of, I'm just going to try versus, you know, I'm going to win or I'm going to do my best or I'm going to give everything I can give, the results are predetermined before you start. Yeah. I mean, the cool thing is that that potential exists for everyone, regardless of talent, whether you're first or last, you can still try as hard as you can. (laughs) I just, I make it my business to encourage people to do just that. You don't have to, if all you care about is, could be just be um, a social thing. You you could run or do triathlons just to spend quality time with friends. If that's your thing, that's fine. But I like to be the guy that is selling the benefits of reaching deep within yourself and even, you know, transforming yourself as a person through that process. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be every race and every day. It's sort of maybe once a year you go through a campaign to say, I'm going to get to my best for this event. Yeah, what you just said reminded me of of CrossFit, the whole CrossFit phenomenon. The reason there's such an attrition rate in CrossFit is that you have to go to the wall every single time you go to the box. And I have a buddy who was really into it for a couple of years, and I, I just caught up with him recently, and I asked if he was still doing it, and he said, no, you know, I burned out, and so many people do. So, yeah, you can only go to the well so often, but, you know, one of the great things about endurance sports is that to train effectively, this gets back to the 80-20 running thing, like, you can't push yourself every day. You should be very comfortable most of the time in training, but, yeah, you choose your spots, both in training and especially in races, to dig really deep. And that's a mental thing as well, right? Because like you said, that burnout is not necessarily physical. It's a, in my case, I find it's a mental burnout. You just can't keep rolling into A races one after another. Yeah. You need to cycle it. So the way I manage that is by seeing it as seasons or cycles. Is that what the science says or is that what you see? Yeah, I, I think it is both psychological and physical, uh, as you suggest. There is research showing that even the phenomenon of peaking itself, which is typically thought of as a physical thing, is actually probably mostly psychological. So like I'm thinking of one study in particular that was done with collegiate cross-country runners, and it found that 
uh, over the course of a season, cross-country season, they actually didn't get any fitter, and yet they peaked in the, in the championship competitions at the end, and it was probably just because they knew all along that they had to. <laughs> you know, they just, as the races became more and more important, they were willing to dig a little, a little deeper. Yeah, it was all the mental mindset. Yeah, but you can't do that forever, right? You know what is laid out in front of you, you know, 12 weeks leading up to the most important race, and then you need a break. You need to regenerate, recharge the mental and physical batteries, and then start again. Right, yeah, it's fascinating. So I have had these conversations with people before, friends of mine in my running club, where, you know, they'll have just run a race and they'll miss their goal, and I'll say something stupid like, it's all mental. Uh-huh. <laughs> and they'll want to hit me because they'll go, no, it's not mental. I couldn't do it. Right. right. So we're getting some hard data on this. And one of the cool things you're talking about is that mind-body connection. And that's what drew me to running and endurance sports originally because of that mind-body connection, that interplay, that interlinking. And I think you can learn so much that way. But what do you say to somebody? Because what your science is saying is that, well, a lot of it's mental, right? Yeah. One concept that that is somewhat difficult for, I guess, the the average athlete to understand is that psychological limits are every bit as real and hard as physical limits. So it's a simple fact that at the point of exhaustion in any kind of endurance test, every athlete has reserve physical capacity that they're just simply not able to tap because they've reached the psychological tolerance for basically the amount of suffering they, they can handle. And we all have those limits, no matter how mentally tough we might like to think we are. So then, you know, when presented with that idea, a lot of athletes think, oh, well, I can just override that then because it's only psychological. No, you can't. (laughs) (laughs) You can certainly, just as you can get physically fitter, you can get mentally fitter. But just like you can't jump off a building and fly, but just by saying you can, every athlete, even the toughest athlete in the world, whoever that is, you know, has psychological limits. Yeah, and there are real physical limits. It's the, it's the interplay between those two that's the interesting part, right? So it sounds like it's, when I say, you know, it's all mental, it's not really all mental. It's situationally mental. Yeah, yeah. yeah you don't want to overstate the case. But the, the, the way I, I frame it is that our physical limits constrain us. Our psychological limits are the ones that we actually directly encounter. So there's a reason that the most talented person typically wins the race because right. that, that, that matters. But a separate issue is, is how much of your 100% can you tap into? And that's the direct psychological limiting experience that we all have. Yeah. And the other thing I think people are missing these days, your average endurance athlete, your mid-packer, your age grouper, is, uh, you know, when you and I were running cross country in high school, we could look at the person we were racing against. Yep. And we could see how they were doing, and you would use those tactics to beat that person. And that greatly, that person, that physical person on the course with you greatly impacted how you were going to run that race and what your mental state was. Yes. And I don't think people get that running the Chicago Marathon. Yeah, it's different, for sure. Running your best race and racing are two different things. <laughs> right. You know, like, you know, often, you know, I think, you know, the typical runner, their experience is, they're surrounded by 30,000 people, but they might as well be completely alone because they're not utterly determined not to let so-and-so get to the finish line ahead of them. When I was in high school, it was often my best friend. We were the co-captains of the, of the cross-country team and very well matched. And I hated it when he beat me and he hated it when I beat him. Uh, and it made us both race a lot better because you know, we keyed off each other. Yeah. So there's an interesting that that kind of points to how the human brain works, right? 
And that's what you're trying to leverage when you're saying, you know, you can leverage some of these mental tricks to tease more performance out, right? Yeah, there's a, there's a whole chapter in my book about that. It's called The Group Effect. What's interesting is that, you know, the performance benefit you get from not just competing with other athletes, but, but training with them, it's not entirely a competitive thing. You know, competition elevates performance just simply by increasing motivation and maybe a little bit by affecting your expectations. You think, well, if so-and-so can break five minutes in the mile, why can't I? There's that. But there's also a cooperative element. And what happens is it's called behavioral synchrony. So anytime you're doing something hard with other people, your brain will release more endorphins, the kind of runner's high chemicals, so that the hard work feels easier and you can do more because of that. And that's just that's our social nature. It's just part of the animal in us. It's like if you're surrounded, that's part of the reason that, that the Kenyans dominate running the way they do is that they, they train in these big groups all the time. They're always together, always striving to raise the level of their performance together. And, you know, that's a, a material benefit to that. Does that explain uh, partly the, you know, when you, you go out to a your local five mile road race and you look at your first mile split and realize you just set a PR for the mile? Because you're surrounded by 50 other people doing the same thing? Yeah, that is definitely part of it. Obviously, there's a lot in there. Usually in a race, you're a little bit tapered. So you have a a more favorable combination of fitness and freshness when you race than presumably you do in most workouts. But yeah, the behavioral synchrony thing is part of that. why, Why you should be better on race day than any other day. So what's some of the other hard science you found out about this sort of mental over physical um, that fascinated you when you were putting this together? One thing that that is just really cool to me that I think is not really appreciated is just how much personality comes into play. The epigraph at the front of my book is from a novel called The Power of One, and, and the line is, the mind is the athlete. It just sounds like a platitude, right? But science is showing that that's really true. So, And that's why mental fitness is not the same formula for each person. In the book, I, t- I talk about a lot of examples of famous professional endurance athletes who exhibit phenomenal mental toughness, but they do it in different ways. And it's always their personality that comes into play, both for better and for worse. So, you know, you could be an optimist and that could be one of your strengths as an athlete, or you could be confrontational and that could be one of your strengths. So you use what you have and try to build on that. And then the psychological characteristics that kind of hold you back, you have to find ways to work around those. So to get back to the the science of this, what more and more uh, researchers are being able to show is that Various tests of personality traits or or mental capacities, tests that you take in street clothes in front of a computer, are highly predictive of endurance performance, which is really cool. You would think, you know, if you wanted to find out who has the most potential in the room for endurance, you would give them a VO2 max test or maybe a body composition test. But more and more, we're seeing that setting them down with the right kind of video game could even predict who's the best runner in the room. Hmm, That's interesting because at the end of the day, the physical can only take you so far. And the mental is going to cap that, right? Yeah, it simply matters just as much. When you're out on the race course, the specific thoughts that you think are either performance enhancing or are performance diminishing. And they are extremely impactful. We, we tend to think of our thoughts as being determined by how we're doing. If you feel good, you have good thoughts. If you feel bad, you have bad thoughts. But it also works the other way around. <laughs> if you have good thoughts, you feel and perform better. And if you have negative thoughts, you create this kind of circuit where you know the, the negativity amplifies itself right so i got a bunch of questions here but i'll i'll start with the easy ones 
<laughs> so we talk about endurance sports. We could mean anything from a two-mile race to a 100-mile race, but those are two different types of suffering. Yep. Right? Yep. A 5K is a way different type of suffering than a 100-miler. Yes. There's got to be a different mental strategy for those two different types of suffering, if you know what I mean. Oh, yeah. And suffering may be the wrong word. Pushing. Yeah, so there's, there's a lot to that in terms of kind of the, the neuroscience what suffering really is, is perception of effort. I mean, there's a, there's a lot going on. You could be thirsty, you could be hot, you could have actual physical pain, you know, your, maybe your thighs are, are cramping up, whatever. But the big one, the reason you hit a wall when you do hit a wall, wall is perception of effort, which is just your global sense of how hard you're working. And perception of effort comes from activity in the parts of your brain that will your body to move. So I like to use like a, a horse and jockey metaphor where your body is the horse and your mind is the jockey. Perception of effort actually comes from the effort of the jockey to make the horse run, not from the horse running itself. So it's brain activity. And what research is showing is that when you hit a wall in a very short race, it's actually a little bit more the horse getting tired and the jockey having to work harder and harder to make the horse keep running. But in something like a Ironman triathlon or a 100-mile running event, it is actually more of the jockey itself just wearing out from, you know, spurring the flanks of the horse over and over. So your brain conks out. That's why they, they if you experience a 5K versus a, an ultra marathon, they feel the suffering, to go back to that word, it feels so different because it, under the hood, what's going on, the source of those limitations is very different. Huh. That's amazing. So it's kind of the old uh, prefrontal cortex versus amygdala where where in the brain these things are coming from, right? Yeah, um, there's a, you know, a few areas. I, I'm not a neuroscientist, but just to throw out some of the terms for those who do know a little bit of neuroanatomy, uh, we're talking about the insular and ter temporal lobes and also the anterior cingulate cortex. That's the part of your brain that becomes active anytime you want two things simultaneously and you have to choose one. And of course, endurance racing is all about that. You want to keep going and you want to quit. <laughs> And also the, the motor areas, obviously, the, the parts of your brain that actually physically send the commands that make your body move. So this brings me to another interesting brain science question, which another thing people don't believe me on, especially sort of the mid-packer people, is that when you're physically fit and you get into one of these races, you have a much higher probability of dropping into what we now call the zone. Yeah. And the zone is a real physical, chemical, mental, neuroscience thing. Yeah. When I talk to elite athletes, they'll talk about that. They'll say, I had this great race, and I dropped into the zone. And, and it's something you can cultivate with focus and with training. Yes, but you can't bottle it. That's what keeps endurance racing endlessly intriguing, is that every time you race, you open up a black box, and you don't know what's inside on that day. So you can set up the conditions for that flow state to emerge, but you cannot completely control it. But yeah, it all begins with physical preparedness. If you're as physically as ready as you can be, you know, that is the foundation for setting yourself up to have that flow experience. So now we've learned a bunch of new stuff about the brain, about effort, about the mental stuff. What are the tools? You know, we're saying mental fitness, that implies there's ways to get better, ways to tone that. Uh, you said it's specific to the individual, but what are some of the practices? Yeah, so I think one of the limitations here is that mental fitness development will never be as programmatic as physical training because it is different because you've got messy things like personality involved. But the, there are certain 
kind of exercises or, or methodologies that you can bring to bear. One of them that I like to talk about is what I call bracing. It's basically setting expectations before you start a race. What research is showing, especially most of it's on pain tolerance versus perception of effort tolerance, but if you know that you're about to experience something painful, you can have two attitudes toward it. One is sort of a kind of uh, resistance, uh, which can go even into denial, like, I sure hope this doesn't hurt as much as it always does. <laughs> you sort of hope unrealistically, you know, that it just won't be that bad. And the other one is a kind of acceptance. It's not pessimism or fatalism. It's just, hey, I know this is going to hurt, but I accept it. And I'll just handle it. So if you're going to have a root canal, uh, <laughs> what the research, psychology research is showing is that your pain tolerance will be much greater if you have that attitude of acceptance going into it. Right. So a big mistake that some athletes make is like they either just without even thinking about it, but before they go into a race, they're like, oh, I hope it's one of those magical days when everything just comes easily. And then what happens is as soon as it isn't, you panic <laughs> and, right. and, your, and your tolerance for perceived effort goes down. So it really is the, the smart thing to do is before every important race, say, hey, this could be the hardest race of my life. I'm ready. I have a goal and I think I will achieve it, but it's going to be a dogfight. That is actually the best way to brace yourself for mental performance. Sounds a lot like what we've always called visualization or chunking. You look at the race, you look at the course, you say, here are the bits where it's really going to, I'm going to have to make a decision. Yep. <laughs> and this is going to happen and it's not going to be good. And here's how I'm going to respond to that and sort of set all that up ahead of time and walk through it, practice it so that when that moment comes, you're more likely to make the right decision or the right reaction than the default. Right. Yeah, in the book, I tell the story of uh, the triathlete Siri Lindley, uh, who was supposed to be a lock to make the first ever U.S. Olympic triathlon team in 2000, uh, but she choked in both of the qualifying races. And the reason she choked, or a big part of the reason she choked, was that she spent, so starting one year before the first Olympic triathlon, she visualized that race every night, and she visualized it as going perfectly from start to finish. <laughs> And so she set herself up, you know, she set the wrong expectations. So it really yeah. matters. So it's not just about don't just do the mental rehearsal, but do it realistically. Right. You know, make it as real as you possibly can. That's the right way to do it. Right. That's a that's a risk mitigation strategy. <laughs> I love that. So and then when you actually get in the event, there's some other sort of tricks that I traditionally endurance athletes use the ability to focus, you know, sort of checklisting in the race, staying in the race. The, the ability to relax into the what we referred to as suffering, yep. you know, sort of accept it in the moment yep. and breathe into it and, or something simple as smiling. Yep. Right. Yeah. One uh, technique that I like to it's not quite smiling, um, but it's the same idea that I, I teach athletes to do is you know, whenever you watch the television coverage of the Tour de France every year and you get to the mountain stages and Phil Liggett and the other guy will be giving the play by play in their colorful style as they do. And they'll talk about how so-and-so you know, gets down to the, you know, the top contenders. Everyone else is blown out the back. They're going up the mountain. And they'll say how so-and-so looks as cool as a cucumber. And then two seconds later, he explodes <laughs> and falls back. Well, why did the dude look cool as a cucumber? Because he was faking it. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and it actually makes a difference. And there's research showing that it does, that uh, just you, how you present yourself to your rivals it's not just about psyching them out. It actually makes you feel a little better. I mean, not much. You're only going to get maybe a half a percent out of that. But just try to, so when you're out there, even if you're not trying to, to win your age group or whatever, whoever's around you when, when you're racing, try to make them 
think that you're not suffering and you actually will suffer a little bit less and be able to you know squeeze out another 0.5 percent or whatever just re- reminds me of high school cross country bat where we, you'd pass somebody you'd stop breathing hard yep and sort of smile and pat them on the bum and, <laughs> and say nice race you know right and uh, as soon as you got around the corner, you'd collapse. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Good athletes do these things instinctually, but not everyone does. So it, it, it's really helpful to know that these things work. And so if you're not doing them already, you know, add them to your arsenal. So it sounds like a lot of this stuff is learnable. Of course, they go buy your book and learn the uh, how to do that. But does it get easier over time and with practice? It doesn't get easier. You just get better. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I think but, that's the right answer. But I'll tell you this, you know, part of the reason that I'm so interested in this topic and that I wrote this book is that I was a mental midget in my sort of the first chapter of my endurance sports career. That was my weakness is that, you know, I, I had talent. I was willing to work hard. But when it came down to it, the guy next to me wanted it that more than I did. And I, I knew it. So I got away from endurance sports for a while. When I came back, that was a monkey I wanted to get, to get off my back. I wanted to, because you hate yourself for it. You know, when you finish a race and you know you left something, uh, you didn't leave it all out there, you know, you feel like a coward. And that's not a good feeling. So I, that's, I really wanted to conquer that. And I can tell you that the, the, my mental game is a strength now. It took time and it took a very intentional process. Like, I am going to work on this. So you absolutely can get better. And it, it improves the whole experience. You know, I used to get so nervous before races, I would almost be sick. And now it's just, it's no big thing. I get the anticipation and excitement, but it feels much better. I'm not just all, you know, tied in knots. And even, even, you know, the suffering itself within a race, it's not as bad as it used to be. I mean, I push myself just as hard, but I'm, it's almost like I'm just always in control of it. Whereas before I just felt like I was just being eaten alive by piranhas or something. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So it's it's good. And I think the important thing for the mid packers who might be listening to this is that when you learn this stuff about yourself, like you said, you felt like a coward that bleeds over into your regular, quote unquote, regular life. Right. But it does. Uh, Where none of us are going to the Olympics. Well, I'm not. You might be. But um, it bleeds over into your regular life one way or the other. So if you can learn these skills, uh, these are very applicable to the real world. Yeah, I agree 100%. I mean, I know this in my own life that there's a reason there's that, that cliche, life is a marathon. It really is. Life is an endurance sport. You need to, you know, the Bible calls it long suffering. You need to have, you need to have long suffering. And uh, being an endurance athlete is a great way to cultivate that. And it also works the other way around. You can go through challenging experiences just in your everyday life and grow through those processes and, and bring it back to the race course. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, so I'll let you go. I've held you too long here, but this has been a fascinating conversation. As you can tell, I'm interested as well. Yeah, really enjoyed talking to you. Give us the the links. How do people find you and anything you want them to do? Yeah, the the place to start is mattfitzgerald.org. You can find out more about me, my my various books, and other things I'm involved in. So start there. All right, man. Thanks for your time. Thank you. We'll talk. All right. Bye-bye. I know. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Conversation Tactics. So I breezed through an ebook yesterday called Conversation Tactics Strategies to Charm, Befriend, and Defend by Patrick King. Actually, I've had a little email conversation since then. 
with Patrick. Uh, See, maybe we can get them on the show at some point. But this was one of those books that Kindle floats by me all the time under the you might be interested category. And it was for the low, low price of $3.99. So I figured I'd take a chance. And who doesn't want to be an adroit conversationalist? As a partial introvert, I find interacting socially with strangers exhausting. I've gotten better at it, but I can always use some help. I thought those of you who have the same social challenges might like to hear my summary. This book is a short and very tactical book. It's written in the current ebook pro style that's quick and breezy. It's not going to win any Pulitzer Awards, but it has some good reminders. It's an easy read with a checklist type format. So here are some takeaways for you. One, know how to take a compliment. I know it took me years to learn how to take a compliment. The correct answer when you receive a compliment is thank you. Don't try to self-deprecate your way out of the compliment. The pro-level tactic is to reverse the compliment. For example, you look like you've lost some weight. The incorrect way to accept the compliment is to argue and self-deprecate. No, I've actually gained four pounds. Or, yes, but I'm such a fat cow anyway you hardly notice. Wrong, wrong, wrong. The correct way is to thank and reverse. Thank you. You always say the nicest things. Even if you're not sure whether it's a compliment or not, you can respond with a thank you and a reverse. It will work. It's a pleasant experience for everybody involved. Number two, look for and use conversational high points. When there is a particular topic that you resonate well on, make note of it. This way you can call back to this point of common enthusiasm later in the conversation when the conversation starts to wane. Number three, contrary to popular belief, it's okay to interrupt as long as you're adding to or confirming what they're saying. This may be as simple as saying, you're so right. Just don't interrupt to take over. This signals that you weren't really listening. You were just waiting for a chance to talk. One great way I've discovered to keep the conversation going is to ask questions. Not just clarifying questions, but deeper questions around the topic or story that they are telling. Instead of piling on with your own opinion or your own story about that topic, ask a great question. For example, the person is telling about their horse riding session. I'm just making this up. You might ask, do you think the horse feels a personal bond with you? Is there some kind of deeper connection? See, that's a good question. Makes them think. Make sure people, this is number four now, (laughs) we're up to number four. Make sure people feel respected. And I know this to be true. Nothing makes me angrier than when I feel like I'm not being respected. Even if you have to fake it, make sure people feel respected. Don't dismiss them. Don't order them around. Acknowledge their fears and their emotions. Make a connection. Much of the tactics around making people feel respected is just to be present in the conversation, to listen, to acknowledge. It's not hard to do, but many of us struggle with this because we have so many other things swirling in our brains. Take a deep breath. Be present. One of the great tips I got from this book was the two-second rule. This means waiting two seconds after the person has finished speaking before piling on or responding. It sends the message that you are actually thinking about what the 
other person said, not just waiting for your turn. Although I love this tactic as an idea, I struggle with how well it would work when there are more than two people. Multi-party conversations hate to have gaps, and somebody will dive in. If you follow the two-second rule in these situations, you might never get your chance. Number six, speak their language, or as we used to call it, mirroring. All this means is that you consciously listen to the pacing and vocabulary being used, and you match it as much as appropriate. I travel. I run into different local speech patterns, and I'll have to speed up or slow down my conversation style to match. I'll slip into the local dialect with pronunciations and vocabulary. You have to be careful that you're being respectful and not being a parody of the locals. The same is true with body language. I'm not saying to do the creepy mirroring thing. Just be cognizant of what they're doing with their face and their hands, etc. And you may notice something you can work with to make the other person feel more comfortable. Number seven, the author suggests warming up for social interactions with some wacky facial and voice gymnastics, similar to how a actor or a voice performer might warm up. And I'm not sure about that one. To each his own. Number eight, the author also suggests that you shouldn't try to memorize any particular parts of your conversation tactics ahead of time. He does recommend having an idea of what your bookends are. These are how you start and how you end the conversation. I agree that trying to memorize conversational interactions is silly. There are, however, stories that you can have in your back pocket that you have practiced and that you know are interesting. Tip O'Neill in his Speaker of the House memoir recounted how Boston's Mayor Curley had told him to memorize a handful of poems and stories that he could always rely on when asked to speak. And of course, number nine, asking questions. We all know we should ask questions in a conversation. There's nothing better for building empathy than asking good questions. However, you don't want to feel like an interrogation. So Patrick, in his book, suggests a two-to-one ratio of questions and personal stories. Ask two good questions, follow up with a story of your own, then ask two more, etc., and this builds a nice flow and follows the old two ears, one mouth maxim. Number 10, there is a very useful chapter on how to take punches. This is where people are giving you digs, whether as good-natured or semi-good-natured attacks. And the tactical jujitsu is to co-opt the joke. For instance, if someone says something like, and I'd like to thank Joe for making the rest of us look good, Joe takes over the joke and might say, you're very welcome, I make it my personal mission to think about the team, or something like that. Of course, if someone's just attacking you or making you feel uncomfortable, it's okay to stop them and say, what did you say? Or what did you mean by that? You know, stop them. And number 11 was never laugh first. The author meant for you to make sure you're not the only one laughing at your jokes. And I've seen this play out in conversations in another way where a person's lack of self-confidence lead to following every sentence with a nervous, ha <laughs> And if you do that, you're just letting the other party in the conversation know that you're not sure of yourself. So listen for that tick and try to stop doing it if you do it. In summary, those are some of the thoughts I had as I was breezing through Patrick's book. I think my biggest takeaway is that social situations, conversations, like anything else, 
have a set of learnable tactics that you can study and deploy. And through practice, you can turn a draining interaction where you are always on high alert and worried about what's going to happen next. You can turn that into a proactive craft with confidence. And these interactions become a lot more enjoyable and a lot less draining when you can control them and be in the flow. And there's an incredible sense of joy and empowerment when you have an interesting and compelling conversation with another person. So your homework is to test out one or two of these tactics this week and see how it feels. I'm expecting reports. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Well, my friends, you were able to stay mentally strong, and I know it was hard, to the end of episode 4-342 of the Run Run Live podcast. Happy nine-year anniversary to us. Happy Father's Day to us all. Does everybody have their summer plans in place? Are you ready? Have you filled your kiddie pool in the backyard? Have you filled it up with ice? The 4th of July in the United States, big holiday, big summer holiday in the United States, is on a Monday this year. I don't really have any plans. I guess I'll have to venture down and see if my Cape House is still standing. Maybe I'll recreate the Rose Walk up the Outer Cape to Provincetown. That might be epic, huh? So we're coming into that time where the Europeans also take the whole summer off. (laughs) Work tends to slow down as people head out to vacation and holiday. So I'll keep it short today because I don't have a lot to say. I know, right? It's hard to imagine. I don't have a lot to say. Please consider becoming a member. It's how I justify the time and money it takes to pull off this podcast. Also, if you're looking at a fall race, you know whether it's a half, a full, or a 10K or whatever, you might want to check out my book, Marathon BQ. If you want to get faster or you want to try some speed work, this is the book where I lay out my speed work secrets that I used to take 40 minutes off my marathon time and qualify for Boston back in the day. And it's on Amazon Kindle and also on audio in Audible. So the links, as always, are in the show notes and on my website. So coming into last week's trip to Atlanta, I had a couple of amusing challenges. I was out trail running with Ryan. I caught a toe. And I did the classic tuck and roll to keep from face planting. But when I stopped rolling, I was right in the middle of a giant poison ivy patch. And I'm super allergic to poison ivy. And it was a hot day. And we were miles from the trailhead. And I had to get on a plane later in the day to go to Atlanta for the week. When we were coming back, we passed a garage where a guy was hosing out school buses with a high-pressure water hose. So we went over and got him to hose me down, and it was very refreshing. (laughs) So I scrubbed off as well as I could when I got home before heading to the airport. And then I'm sitting in the airport, and a crown comes loose on one of my back molars. So here I am, getting ready to go to Atlanta, to be on stage, to be engaged, and I'm losing a tooth, and there's a good chance I'm going to swell up into a giant pussy rash in front of the whole company. But thankfully, the bus wash and the quick shower were able to mitigate an uncontrolled dermatological explosion. And I got a couple itchy bits, but nothing compared to what could have been. So I dodged a bullet there. And my tooth stayed put until Wednesday when I found it in a piece of pizza at lunch. But it didn't hurt, and I was able to get it patched up when I got back. 
See, things never turn out as bad as we think they will. I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. With a Bible quote on it about everlasting lug. <laughs> lug. <laughs> you everlasting lug, you. Mostly I'm just trying to get all my runs in, trying to keep all of my balls in the air. I guess I should say the balls in the air. <laughs> let me take that let me take that whole section over. I sounded like a dick. 